I'm Erica. And I'm Jules. Most people have at least one thing that they can't or won't eat. Yeah, we're definitely like that. We started this podcast to talk about the gluten-free food industry. Like new products and some of the stories behind your favorite brands. And living life with a specialty diet and also some important healthcare topics. Since we're basically both broken inside. You had me at eat. and welcome back to another episode of You Had Me and Eat. I'm Erica. And I'm Jules. And today we have a special episode for you today. Um, Why is it special? Because we couldn't fit in anywhere else. And that's why it's special. (laughs) Just like how you were told. Yeah. Just like how you were told you were special growing up as a kid. That's what this episode is like. That's right. That's right. We don't know what to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here's the deal. DDW was a couple months ago. (laughs) Yeah, but remind our listeners what that even means, Erica. A few months ago, I went to Chicago and visited Digestive Disease Week, which is the largest international gathering of digestive disease experts, be it gastroenterologists, be it pharmacologists and pharmacy brands within the field of gastroenterology, uh, nurses, uh, dietitians, anything else related in the medical field to gastroenterology, including journalists. Yes. And journalists there can be ranging from anywhere like a little podcast, like us, the little podcast that could. Or it could be up to Helio Journal or Journals of Gastroenterology, which are like major publications. Um, and it's not lay person friendly. It and that was not French. <laughs> lay L A Y person. <laughs> Le person friendly. Oh, no. Um oh, so Lordy. it wasn't uh there it's not for regular Joe Schmo off the street, just learning, wanting to learn more about gastroenterology. These are specific research related, um, uh, symposiums and, uh, research that's actually being done that is finally presented. There are, um, poster presentations on anywhere ranging from, um, like the smallest molecule ever and learning about gut barrier dysfunction and what actually happens in the gut to psychosocial issues that are around certain digestive disease to um, pharmacy evaluating like phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials. I mean, literally anything that happens in digestive disease. It cracks me up every time that, you know, these just these amazing medical professionals these amazing hospitals, these, these practice groups, these pharmaceutical companies, like high level thinkers, lots of money on the table, really, really complicated thoughts and, you know, getting it all out there, sharing it. And they do it in posters. <laughs> it just mm-hmm. feels very mm-hmm. high school, mm-hmm. you know, science, project? science fair, like to yeah. me. And they do it all around the world. Whenever, whenever there's mm-hmm. any one of these conferences, they're all like, I'm presenting a poster. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so funny to me. It very much is just like a high school 
science project class where you go around the teacher looks and each kid has their poster board up and they're like, um, I wanted to share um, my findings in this. And I wanted to talk to this data point behind me. And um, that's how you make the volcano blow up with baking soda, (laughs) you know, like, and that's exactly hood as you walk around and and they're standing there and the researchers like standing there and they're like, hi, do you want to learn about my poster? And they're like, I guess. (laughs) And then you talk to them about their poster and they say the same thing over and over and over again for an hour and a half to two hours straight. Yep. And, and then people it. try to share it on like medical Twitter and everything. And like, I can't see that poster. Yeah. Like, it's like a picture of a poster and, and you can't and blow it up. And it's just like, what? And I it's mean, not, it's um, so low tech. It's not even, it boggles the mind. The fact that we were not able to share posters yeah. visually, because that's not allowed. Yeah. And like, everyone has their weird rules about posters. Some people are like, oh, yeah, take my picture in front of it. I don't care. Others, like, I couldn't talk to someone presenting because I was a member of press. And I'm like, I know you. We're buds. And they're like, like technically, I can't talk to you. And I'm like, I'm not going to like, I'm not. I'm not finding Donald Trump's tax records in his bathroom right now. <laughs> I'm literally asking you what this poster means. I'm not an investigative journalist. Right. I just want to know what were your research findings. And they can't talk to press. And I'm like, I'm a I'm a podcast. Like, if yeah. I was just a person, can you at least explain this to me? Because I still have no right. idea what this poster is about. Right. It's weird. It is so. Yeah. It is just a strange land where there's made up rules of everything, and there is. Uh, a pharmaceutical company spend like a bazillion dollars to have these yep. massive booths that are almost comically large and you have to go in them because that's the only place that you can find coffee. And then some <laughs> only have alcohol and some have tea. So it's just like, and then some have morning breakfast croissants because you can't find food literally anywhere else in this entire place. Also for Not the digestive conference, <laughs> no gluten-free no. food. And no. this happens every year, no gluten-free food. Even in the gluten-free specific lunches that you have to pay to be there, there is zero gluten-free food. So I'm there with other dietitians who are gluten-free. And of course I get one glutened taking to a restaurant that I was safe at before. So that really sucks. Is that Amidala? It's Amidala. Mm-hmm. Good God. What are you doing, girlfriend? <sighs> she was locked in my office. Oh, poor baby. It's almost time for food. So she was like, let me out. Do ditto. I know. I know. So <laughs> anyway, it's just wild. I can't eat anywhere. And I'm hungry the entire time that I'm there. And it's so sad and so weird. And it's in Chicago. But That's the place that they're one. at doesn't have any gluten-free food. No safe food around the area that you can walk to. You have to Uber mm-hmm. everywhere. San yeah. Diego, same thing. It's downtown. Not a lot of safe options. And then Washington. You know what? State. They should That's have it in Paris. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, when they have ICDS in Paris sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And that was There'd a great year for people. Options. There sure there was. Um, so anyway, so they have this meeting. It, it bounces back between San Diego, Chicago, and Washington, D.C., although it's going to be... In D.C., I guess, next year. I don't really remember. So it bounces between the three places. And it is where all the research comes out for the entire year. So either people present their early research, meaning, hey, these are the the early findings that we have. And then we'll present it in like a journal or a poster later in the year. Or Mm -hmm. it's like, hey, these are the final journals that got published after we presented the research last year or something. There's been research and clinical trials and everything that I've followed since I started doing this six, seven years ago. So, I mean, it's not like research moves at the speed of light. Things happen pretty slowly. So some of this stuff 
I've seen, you know, wax and wane over the years as far as new research coming out. Um, but I was there for celiac disease and for IBS, and there were quite a few things happening this year. IBS was the hot, sexiest topic that no one could get away from. Everyone would talk about IBS, which was great. Yeah, it's really funny because that's really come around. It used to be that was the ugly stepchild of yeah. You know, yeah. GI disorders. Like, yeah, we don't know what it is. Just call it IBS. And, uh, yep. and it's probably all in your head anyway. Yeah. It was called a garbage can diagnosis. Yeah. Right. Well, like, oh, no, no, just put it in the trash, just put an IBS. Mm-hmm. So it used to be called something and now it's called, um, like it was like a psychosomatic or not psychosomatic, yeah. but like well, where it's like, they're like, listen, it's mostly just the fact that you are a crazy woman. Yeah. It's, and it's now stress yeah. and, and stress related can handle stress. And so it's IBS. Yeah. Um, and now it's like disorders of gut brain interaction, meaning like it is kind of all in your head, but mm-hmm. there is another issue. And now mm-hmm. we're getting to the point where we understand that like, yes, the microbiome can be compromised And while we do understand the interaction between the gut and the brain, we do know that there are other things that can be a part of it all. And a lot of microbiome research with um, like SIBO and the bacterial count and how that changes even during the day and during seasons, they found out that there's like seasonal changes in microbiome. And I'm like, oh, interesting. Makes Um, sense. There's like a a bunch of like wackadoodle stuff that you're like, whoa, this is bonkers. And like- Pick like, I don't know, two or three top things that came out of DDW that you think our listeners would really, really like to hear about. That's 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 like totally big, big newsworthy item. So that's the thing is what's so weird is like some things can be newsworthy, but we always have to say the caveat of like, this is just initial research. Sure. Because sometimes we find things like, oh my God, this is going to be the next cure. And everyone's like totally freaked out. And they're like, oh my God, in two years, I'm going to eat a croissant again. I'm going to Paris and have a regular croissant, which as we just learned from our last episode, you don't need to. You can have a gluten-free croissant. That's right. But the speed that research moves, it's not as easy as like we found something in a mouse model and then that doesn't necessarily translate to like regular grown ass people. So um, yeah, it's really difficult. But one thing that's cool, again, going back to IBS is the focus on how much the gut brain interaction was so, so, so critically important and having GIs finally understand that you have to mitigate stress and like look at some behaviors and look at how, stress affects GI outside of just like the gut brain interaction, but like how do eating disorders play into this? How does ARFID, how do all these other things that are like also psychological disorders work hand in hand? I found this one slide that was talking about like what SSRIs work best for abdominal Mm. pain. And I like wasn't on the SSRI that's best for the abdominal pain. I'm just like, this is so cool. Now that we finally understand how they interplay together with the brain and gut directed hypnotherapy, which even a few years ago, when I talked about like doing hypnotherapy for IBS, people were like, yeah, might as well be doing Mm -hmm. summer solstice yoga, moonstone (laughs) worshiping, whatever, you know? Yeah, And now it's like, it's not essential oil woo woo. Like it's like legitimately has been proven to be cognitively like significant, statistically significant for improvement on IBS functions. So that's kind of the first finding is to like finally understanding, yes, there's connection between the gut brain and getting GIs to finally understand it versus just like, she's clearly nuts. It's like, well, she may be nuts. Right. 
But well, it also affects so so much issues. of the education uh, around um, you know not just for gastroenterologists but for all mm-hmm. um, all physicians. So much of the education is done by pharmaceutical companies, and so if you're talking about like hypnosis or something like that, like what pharmaceutical company is going to be telling them about that again? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just, it's not something that they're exposed to. And so, you know, where's my, where's my prescription pad? You know, I need to be able to, um, to fix this with some sort of, um, pill or medication. And, and I am so for like, I'm pro pharma, not like everyone needs to be on pharma, but if you need it, that's fine. And they showed charts of like pairing gut directed hypnotherapy with, a pharmaceutical either for depression or anxiety, mm-hmm. but also like maybe it pairs up with your antidiarrheal medication, you know, and like how do we make these two work together and make sure. it more synergistic versus just putting someone on a pill and like thinking right. that that's going to change their IBS when in right. reality it may be stress from mm-hmm. something else or like yeah. even PTSD, they talked about approach. that for yeah. sure, which is God, thank God, finally it's mm-hmm. only been like 100 years. Right. <laughs> One of the things that I definitely wanted to make sure we touched upon in this episode was the finding um, about oats. So would mm-hmm. you um, lead yes. us into that? Because I think yes. a lot of our listeners want to hear about that. Absolutely. So there has been kind of, it's been known that some celiacs have reaction to oats, even mm-hmm. purity protocol oats. It just layers in another murkiness in the whole oat scenario with celiac disease. So if you have celiac disease, it's like, yeah, you can have oats, but make sure that it's gluten-free oats. So there's no cross contact. And like, is it certified gluten-free oats? Is it purity protocol oats that don't have a necessarily label to them? Like what kind of oats can I have? And then you hear about people who are sick from oats all the time. Was it cross contact or was it something else? And that's, I think the something else part is what they're trying to clarify. And I think that GIs think that it's kind of a myth that like all these people are reacting to oats because they're like, it's just high fiber. And it's like, no, it's not. So that has now been myth busted. Like, yes, you can react to the high fiber of oats, but like if you eat other fibers and it's just oats that are the problem, chances are you are a part of this 8%, 8% of celiacs that they studied that have a T cell response, meaning your inflammatory response to your body is happening because of this. It's specifically something called IL-2 and it increases with celiac disease or for 8% of those who they, they research who have celiac disease, who are eating pure uncontaminated oats. So no mm-hmm. cross contact mm-hmm. at all, just pure avenin itself. And right. they had an increase of pain, diarrhea, and vomiting. Um, and what was nice is while they did have an immune response to it, it was short-lived. So it is not a long-term immune response. You know, how celiac disease is right. a long-term immune response. So it takes the villi from this to this. So villus right. blunting and atrophy. There was no, no villus blunting, no sustained immune response that could degrade villi, which right. is actually great news because yes. I think people get super freaked out if they eat oats and like, oh my God, I'm going to have right. villus blunting and I'm never going right. to recover. Right. Um, and I think that they made a great point that they're like, oats should be an allergen. We have to spell out oats wherever they are in any sort of labeling because yeah. this is a large percentage of those with celiac disease who cannot eat oats, period, period, point blank, not purity protocol, not no cross contact, just oats, period. 
Yeah. And just for a couple points of clarification for people who don't know what we're talking about, the avenin is the protein, protein in the oats, just like the glutenin and the gluten is the protein in wheat, barley, and rye. Totally different um, animal altogether, which is why the avenin doesn't cause your body to attack itself in the same way, that autoimmune response, which is why you don't have the villi, uh, the villus blunting and all that kind of response that you have for celiac. So it's not a, a celiac response necessarily that we're talking about, like for the avenin response, but it's 8% of people who have celiac disease also have this response. So it's not like because you have celiac, you are responding to oats. And there's, that's a subtle difference, but it's important to understand because I think a lot of people think, just like when I was diagnosed with celiac disease, I was told you can't have oats. It's wheat, mm-hmm. barley, rye, and mm-hmm. oats. No, it's not like that. It's wheat, barley, and rye. You also might be one of those people who has a separate reaction to the avenin in the oats. And it's good to know now that they've agreed it's 8%, which means 92% still can have mm-hmm. oats. And it's a very valuable part of a, of a healthy celiac's diet if you can tolerate purity protocol oats because the fiber is so healthy for you. And because oats are just a really delicious. <laughs> they're delicious and they're really good. And you can bake with them and um, cooking and all kinds of different things is really, really useful. It's, um, you know, as a celiac, you want more things in your diet, not, not fewer things mm-hmm. in your diet. So if it's mm-hmm. something that you can tolerate, then you should be eating oats. Um, but it's not something that everyone can tolerate. So this is very useful information and it's good to have dialed it in and to understand that you're not going to have the villus um, blunting and, and other autoimmune responses, if you even if you do have the uh, inflammation and have a negative response to I think, the avenins. I think those that, that have never been able to tolerate oats have always really felt unheard in the celiac community. Yeah. I have um, two friends in particular, Sarah and Aaron, that can't yeah. do oats, period. And they're just like, what am I? Like, I don't understand. And they've all been told, like, maybe it's 1%, maybe it's 2%. And now they're like, we did a study, it was 8%. It's mm-hmm. probably more than we think. So I think that that's important. I also think it's really important for food manufacturers to understand. If you're taking so 1%. So many of them are putting oats yes. in everything. Everything's gluten free. Why would you do that? Like one percent of the world, yeah. okay, has to be gluten free. That's fine. It's still a ton of people. Yeah. But then when you're taking out parts that don't want it because they don't know if it's purity protocol, they don't want it because they're the eight percent. You're chomping at this one percent of people, right? And it's just like, come on, stop putting oats and everything because not everyone can have it or right. not everyone wants it. Right. Come on, right? Right. Guys, well, and oat, oat milk and, and all of that. I mean, everywhere. You know, everywhere. Everywhere. Prolific. Mm-hmm. Everywhere. Um, and then the last thing that I want to talk about is every year, everyone's like, when is the cure coming out? I'm like, great question. No idea. <laughs> because every year I'm like, oh my God, in the next five years, it's going to happen. And everyone's been saying that. Yeah. And in the past three years, we've had some really disappointing fails. Mm-hmm. of like people that have, or pharmaceuticals that have gone through phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trial. And then honestly, it has not gotten the response that it needs to get because you have to prove beyond just a statistical significance of like the placebo effect. In some of these, the placebo did just as well as the other one. Yeah. And it's like, Ooh, that's not what we want mm-hmm. to happen from a drug. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah. And some of these are like intense. They're like IVs and some of them are shots and some of them are pills. Like it's a big and thing. And you have it's, to do it over and over again forever yep. and ever. Amen. Yep. Like it's not yep. like I took that pill and I'm cured. Yeah. So it's like a, it's a big deal. So this is very, very important research that's happening. So we've seen things come and go. 
And we've seen, fortunately, a lot of cl- clinical trials fail. Um, but I did get a chance to talk to one researcher. Um, so first, the KAN 101 study, which is the ACED study. There are actually several studies that are going on right now beyond celiac and CDF are great places to find update, up-to-date clinical trial information. Uh, KAN um, is actually, it targets the liver to re-educate autoimmune cells to not have them, you know, attack gluten. And they just went through phase one and that went really good. Um, You know, there's a couple that are in early phase one. So phase 1A where it's just like healthy people. And that's great. But like there are so many other phases of clinical trials that it's really hard to get excited about any of these because it's just, you don't know if it's going to come to fruition or not. Um, but I did talk to one researcher, Jason Tyden. He's a big, big celiac researcher from Australia. And um, he is incredible. And I love him. And he was so kind. Um, and he talked a lot about um, DonQ52, which is an antibody for treatment um, for gluten exposure, but not barley and rye. And only for those in HLA DQ2, and it blocks mm-hmm. gluten peptide very early on, mm-hmm. very early on. Again, this is not going to like, you know, clinical trials quite yet, but there is some exciting research that's happening. He also did research and why I love him is because he's just like all research all the time. He's like super, super involved in SSCD, which is the Society for the Study of Celiac Disease that I'm a part of. I'm a card carrying pain member. And he talked about is there a way that can we find increases in IL-2, which is an inflammatory marker specific for celiac disease in whole blood to where we can not have to do a gluten challenge and just yeah. pull blood from patients? And that was, I think, one of the most exciting things that I heard because gluten challenges are very difficult for a lot of people. Yeah. Wouldn't and so it be many nice people to don't want to do it. They just say, forget it. I'm yep. not going to do it. And then yep. we don't, they don't know, their family doesn't know, and statistically, we don't know how many people mm-hmm. actually yep. have celiac disease. And then even if there was a cure, they couldn't mm-hmm. get it because right. they don't know if they have celiac or not and mm-hmm. what type of celiac disease because you have to have specific genes for some of these. So it's really interesting to see, can they pull blood from you, do something in a lab and actually pull the whole blood and say, yes, I can see based on that. If I put gluten in this blood pool, I mean, it's very fancy, but like if if you inject gluten into your blood in this like lab, can we see that your blood is making an IL-2 response Mm -hmm. based on your immune system that's outside your body? So it doesn't even, you don't even have to take a pill. You just get your blood taken. Can that be the future? And I think that that's where his research is going. And that's really cool. Yeah. Well, and let's take a listen, because I think that the the listeners would really enjoy hearing a little bit more from him specifically on on where his research is going and the latest in celiac disease. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks, Erica. Um, So I'm an adult gastroenterologist. And for just over the last 20 years, I've been uh, involved in celiac disease research and also the care of people with celiac disease. Um, and my research has been really focused on understanding why does it happen and what are the immune mechanisms that lead to celiac disease. So I've come to DDW to present some of our data around several studies that we've been performing, including this particular study on a novel treatment. Fantastic. So how long have you been in practice for celiac disease as a specialty? So I- I think I started my first celiac clinic in 2003, 
So I uh, have been working in the space since then. And, you know, I see a range of different um, people with um, gluten-related issues and symptoms trying to get a diagnosis. I see patients who have struggles with their gluten-free diet and they're not healing up or they're getting ongoing symptoms or non-responsive or refractory disease. So it really is a broad range of different things that I see. Um, and that's combined with um, research into, the, into celiac disease as well. One of the biggest challenges I think for people with celiac disease is that even though many will follow a strict and very uh, fastidious gluten-free diet, some will continue to experience adverse symptoms and some will be told by their doctor, oh, you're not healing up your bowel, which is super frustrating when you're trying to do all the right things. Um, so this, this is a real problem because it tells us that whilst the gluten-free diet is a treatment for celiac disease it's not necessarily the most perfect treatment and it clearly it has impacts on lifestyle and, and quality of life and, and fear around accidental gluten exposure. So all of those things really mean that we do need to develop better treatments for people with celiac disease, ideally things that allow them to have some gluten and not feel unwell and not get the damage inside that could lead to longer term health issues. So with that in mind, um, I've been doing a lot of work with groups to understand and develop new therapies. And this particular one that I'm talking about today is known as DonQ52. Now DonQ52 is a, a custom designed antibody that is designed to target the parts of gluten, we call them gluten peptides, that trigger the disease in people with celiac disease. Now it's specific to those people who have a certain type of gene, which is called HLA-DQ 2.5 or 2.2. So about 80 to 90% of people with celiac disease will have this particular gene type. And for those people with celiac disease, when they ingest gluten, it can trigger an abnormal immune response. We call that a T-cell response, and that leads to all the manifestations of disease and the damage in the bowel and problems like that. So it, this approach is really designed to target that gluten-specific T-cell response in people who have the HLA-DQ 2.5 or 2.2 gene. So if you could block that response, then you could potentially reduce the harmful effects of the gluten-specific T-cell. So on that basis, we recruited people with celiac disease in Australia, and we actually asked them to undertake a gluten challenge. Now, this is not something we do lightly, but it's a really important tool to help us understand immune responses and to test drugs like this. So um, all these very willing, um, and you know, amazing participants undertook a three-day gluten challenge where they consumed wheat for three days, wheat bread, and then we collected a blood sample six days after starting that. And we also asked a separate group of people to do that with rye, um, which they made into muffins, or barley, which they made into a kind of risotto. And what happens is when people with celiac disease consume gluten, whether it be wheat, rye or barley, it triggers an immune response and we can measure that in the bloodstream. So on the sixth day, the blood is full of these T cells that cause the disease and we can harvest that from the blood and then use those cells to test and study new drugs. So that's what we did. And what we were able to do is isolate those immune cells after wheat, rye or barley and then put them in a test tube and, and mix them with relative different forms of gluten peptides that trigger the disease. 
Now, when you do that, it triggers a very strong response in those T-cells and tells us, yes, those T-cells aren't happy. Um, clearly, the gluten is triggering them. But then we mixed some of those samples with this DonQ52 drug, and lo and behold, it was very effective at blocking that immune response. So against a mixture of the most, what we call dominant gluten peptides in wheat, it blocked 80 to 100% of that response across the population of people we assessed. And for rye and barley, it was around 40 to 80%. So about half of those responses were completely wiped out. So this was um, exciting findings. Um, we showed that this particular drug didn't block responses to other um, proteins such as tetanus. So it means that people can still have an uh, intact immune response against important infections. It's not broad immunosuppression, okay. it's very targeted to the gluten that triggers the disease. So this blockade um, was we thought was you know this is very exciting because it was very potent it really wiped down and reduced that response now what does that mean well I guess it's important now to undertake clinical trials in people where the drug is actually given to people and to assess both the safety and also uh, confirm that it can actually effectively block the um, uh, effect of gluten so um, a phase one study, which is primarily designed to confirm safety, uh, is currently underway here in the States, which is super exciting. And um, pending those results, um, I would imagine that the plan would be to move on to um, further phase two studies to then show that this drug is effective. Now, is this um, an injection? Is this enzymes that you take? Like, what is the ingestion method? Uh, this will be most likely a, an injection of the medication and that will be tested in the phase one study and then subsequently in the phase two, two study. So that was so cool. I love hearing from Jason. I think something else that I wanted to share with him as well, we kind of got off topic, but we talked a little bit about the importance of being a part of a clinical trial. And yeah. I want to stress just like if you can, be a part of a clinical trial. Sometimes it's weird. Sometimes it's wonky. Sometimes you may have to eat gluten. The first, first thing of all clinical trials is do no harm. They will take you off if you are experiencing things that they don't want you to experience. Sometimes it can be scary, but it's the only way that we can move forward with the research and the future of celiac disease. I know plenty of people who are in clinical trials that love the experience and love the fact that they're being able to pay it forward to the next generation. But let's have a listen to um, Dr. Jason Titan talk about the importance of clinical trials with celiac disease research. Um, our research has also been um, involved in developing new diagnostic for celiac disease and I presented some data uh, just yesterday, uh, preliminary data, but it's assessing, uh, it's a blood test and it assesses the immune response from these gluten specific T cells that I talked about before. Now the beauty of this blood test is it seems to work even when people are not eating gluten. So, you know, we all know that it's a big challenge if you've gone gluten free um, to try to get a diagnosis of celiac disease because your doctor will ask you to get back onto gluten for six weeks or more and that can be horrendous for many people who develop bad symptoms so there's a real need to be able to test for celiac disease without asking people to get back onto gluten so um, we it's 
preliminary data at this stage, but it's certainly exciting that down the track there may be ways to diagnose and monitor celiac disease just through a blood test without a gastroscopy uh, and, and be accurate with that diagnosis and not ask people to eat gluten. Yeah. We were doing the three-day challenge years ago, then we're now down to a single-dose challenge, oh and now we're down to just the gluten challenge yeah. in the test tube. Yeah. So um, the hope is that this will really make life a lot easier for people to get some resolution about their diagnosis. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing as a patient. Um, I was forced to go back on a gluten challenge for Mayo Clinic. They were unsure of my diagnosis, mm. and I had to go back on for six to 12 weeks and I was so sick I couldn't complete the challenge. I think yeah. I lasted probably six weeks. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's the biggest thing is when I'm getting people trying to be screened for celiac or trying to be tested, they've already gone gluten-free and they said, no way. Yeah, no. and I understand that. I totally. have so many patients that do that and it's completely understandable because I do a lot of work that does involve gluten challenge. I do see the reaction some people get and it's certainly not pleasant and completely understand that. And we're doing a lot of research on understanding why some people get such bad symptoms and then why some people don't. You know, yeah. some people can have accidental gluten quite a large amount and not get any symptoms. So there's a lot of variability there. Jules, so that's all I've got. Again, there was so much research hanging out at DDW, learning so much. I have stories on my Instagram stories, some posters from uh, my girl Jessica Lovewitz, uh, Columbia about dating with celiac disease. There's so many things that I put on Twitter, so I'm going to link all to that in uh, the show notes. I will also put the link to uh, CDF has a good recap, Beyond Celiac has a good recap of everything that happened at DDW for celiac disease specific stuff. I can even post a link to some stuff that happened on Gastro Girl for IBS. So lots of cool things at DDW, and we are here to make you known of all that's new in gastroenterology. So thanks for listening, Jules. Yeah. Thanks for um, doing all the heavy lifting for us and for distilling it down to bite-sized portions. I think it's been really helpful and um, interesting yeah. to, to hear from somebody who was there in person uh, to see the posters with her very own eyes. Eating on the <laughs> eating on the poster floor, sitting down with my, my juice box and my right. beef jerky and being like, I can't eat anywhere here, That's but right. I'm here for the research. But yeah, thanks exactly. for having me. <laughs> Totally, totally. Well, well, thanks for listening, everyone. We appreciate your uh, your attention and um, share this uh, link with anyone that you think would be um, interested in hearing more about celiac disease research and also um, you know anything else that we hop on to talk about here at You Had Me at Eat. We'll be back next week with more. And um, in the meantime, stay well, be healthy, and uh, eat gluten-free. Yeah. yeah. Bye. If you like this episode, make sure you rate it on your podcast provider. And subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. You had me at eat. <laughs>